Howdy and welcome to the Boundless Book Club, the podcast that knows no bounds and dallies in the stories of all nations. Today we are lingering in the literature of the United States of America, just in time for its 244th birthday. From the Emirates Literature Foundation in Dubai, you are here with me, Ahlam, and me, Andrea. We will be joined shortly by one of our favorite American authors living in the UAE, Avni Doshi. The USA is known as a land of opportunity. It is even called the new world, which gives it a youthful energy, unlike the tired old world, which goes to bed before 9 p.m. and wears tartan slippers to dinner. (laughs) So today for Independence Day, I want to look at the authors who bring the same energy to their books and offer a young perspective. Let's talk about the kids of America. What have you brought today, Andrea? So I am bringing you a fabulous book um, that I read last year, and it's called Dominicana by Angie Cruz. And it was on, I think it won a bunch of awards. Dominicana refers to our protagonist, who is a 15-year-old Dominican girl called Anna. And it also refers to a doll that's a hollow doll, which is like a traditional Dominican doll uh, in, inside of which she stashes away all her secrets because Anna is so utterly alone in the story that this doll is the only one she can share her secrets with. And the story starts in Dominica, where the 15-year-old Anna is married off to 32-year-old Juan Ruiz. The Ruiz brothers are seen as the big boys in this little town because they, they live in the US and they are believed to be wildly successful because anyone who lives in the United States of America must be. So there's no question of love at all. This, this is a transaction really for a better life for her entire family. Her getting married to this man is a chance for them all to have the American dream because Juan, according to his family, needs a good wife from home who can cook for him because that's sort of what you do. So the whole thing is arranged and he will take Anna with him to the US and then she can send for her family one by one. And that way she's this conduit for them all to have this new life. Mm. So after a after confusing and rushed wedding in Dominica, um, she and her new husband fly off to, to the US and she has to have a fake passport. That's how young she is. She can't travel on her own passport, which she can't have her own passport because she's too young. So she's got a fake passport that says that she's 19 so she can get through immigration. And when they arrive in New York, she's a bit confused about this really shabby flat in a fairly grotty part of New York where they live and it's you know she's really confused about this squalor and she feels depressed and alone and she doesn't speak the language and her husband is not particularly interested in her he's a he's a drinker and he's sometimes abusive and he just keeps her at home to sort of cook and clean and says don't even open the door if anyone rings the doorbell wow I know but she's Mm -hmm. young and you know the way young people are she's young she's enterprising and slowly she 
she adapts and she grows and hope starts to spring through various of things that happen. And she starts to think that perhaps a, another life is possible. But she has all, all this responsibility on her, right, for her entire family, who, who she doesn't really know how to tell them that this glory of this beautiful, wealthy life in the, in the US is, is not what they thought it would be. So before too long, she has to face an absolutely impossible decision. And I'm not going to tell you any more about what that is. But I think one thing that's really interesting about this book is that the author based it on her mum's life. So her mum is, I mean, this is effectively what happened to her mum. She came at a very young age for a better life. And when she told her mum that she was writing this story, she said, sure, who would want to read about something like that? Mm. But I think what happened is that this, Although this is a story about one person coming from one village, having this one marriage, it resonates with, I think, a lot of people who have the immigrant experience, no matter where they come from, and no matter what language they speak, because that, that feeling of being so separated from, from where you're from and from your history, is, right. it's so universal. And also, it's so universal when you when you say the storyline of, you know, this man who's in America and chooses a wife from back home because yes. she wants him her to come and now look after him. And she sees this as this huge opportunity to go to America and bring her whole family. I think that I mean, that's that happens with people from all over the world who have difficult situations at home and view America as this, you know, land of opportunity right um, yeah it, it's so familiar it is and I mean the U.S. is a, a whole nation of immigrants so so it, it, it just I think it's a really important perspective on on this um, on this country yeah, and the whole absolutely. you know the whole country is made up of voices like Anna's so this is set in the 60s but really it could be it could be today and I want to read you just the first, the first paragraph in the book. The first time Juan Ruiz proposes, I'm 11 years old, skinny and flat chested. I'm half asleep. My frizzy hair has bursted from out from a rubber band and my dress is on backwards. Every other weekend, Juan and three of his brothers show up past midnight all the way from La Capital to serenade the good old country girls in the area who are el eligible for marriage. They're not the first men to stop by and try at me and my older sister, Teresa. So that's, that's almost horrifying, isn't it? Crazy. How old is she when she marries him? 15. Wow. So it was four, she had four years of, of these regular proposals. Oof. And it's like, it's not about the person, which is so abundantly clear from this paragraph. They just, <laughs> they want someone who can cook food from home. It was actually, awesome. it says here, it was shortlisted for the Women's Prize of Fiction last year, which I hadn't realized. Wow, sounds great. What sounds have you got? So oh, sorry. I have another <laughs> unusual American story. <laughs> 
So the book that I've chosen for today is Educated by Tara Westover, which was hugely popular in the year it came out. I can't remember now if it was 2018. It was um, recent anyway. Yeah, it was the last few years. Um, and uh, it's the story, it's the autobiography of Tara herself, who grew up in a little town in Idaho uh, under the Bucks Peak Mountain. Um, in a fundamentalist Mormon family. And uh, she grew up in a house with seven kids and her father just created this reality for them where their worlds were so small um, and so disconnected from the world around them. And they are just waiting for the day of abomination every day, gathering food, you know, just, just, looking at the outside world as the enemy. They didn't go to school. They didn't believe in hospitals and modern science. They did not trust the socialist government who is trying to brainwash them. And uh, the only education they had was a curriculum that uh, their mother uh, made up without any qualifications and taught them at home. They weren't examinated or nothing. And the only purpose for their education was for them to learn the Bible, to read the Bible and the Book of Mormon, and also just help uh, their parents work uh, within the system that they created and support at home. And um, her mother's a midwife. Uh, she's a sort of a natural healer. Um, and uh, it's she just grows up in a crazy household but the insane thing is that she's not aware you know in her situation she she believes her circumstance to be completely normal you know and she knows that they have food saved for 10 years in in their house for the day where you know he, uh, the world has to end and you know when she's outside and making new friends in her mind she just thinks oh, well, this person's my friend now, but as soon as they run out of food, they're going to be the enemy because they're going to come to our house because we're going to have food and they're not prepared. And that's just one example of all of the insane little things that they believe to be their realities. And then when she's 15, her brother, who she's changed his name in the book, she calls Sean, comes back home and um, they, they obviously grow up in a very patriarchal environment. The role of women in the household and in life is, is a very specific um, idea that they have about, about that. And her brother, who at times, you know, there's been times in their lives where he saved his, her life, where he supported her at work, but also he's abusive. He's, you know, broken her ankle, uh, her wrist he's shoved her head down the toilet like he is just an incredibly abusive person but in her mind she always seems to think oh that well that we're just kind of playing around or um that must have been my fault you know it must have been something I did um and you know she she thinks about you know her idea of an abusive person as portrayed you know in in in, in any of the movies that she she may have seen in her grandma's house and things like that. It's always like a man and a wife beater and who is aggressive and abusive all the time, right? So she doesn't identify what Sean is doing to her as abuse as well. 
And then at some point, I mean, the story of Tara is that she, uh, at the age of 17, she kind of leaves that system and she educates herself. She teaches herself algebra and all of the things she needs to learn to get into a local college and then eventually into Cambridge and eventually into Harvard. And she's today a historian, Harvard graduate historian. Um, after not having a formal education until the age of 17. And, um, but what strikes me so much about this story is, um, because Oprah interviewed her, and I can't remember if this was an Oprah's book club uh, pick, but uh, her her interview with Oprah is is really, really interesting and uh, impactful, uh, if if anyone's interested to, to listen to it. So basically, she's estranged from half of her family today, you know, because they are outraged that she left the system and she's no longer a Mormon. And also she's written this book, which, you know, reveals (laughs) all of these things about them. And something really interesting, uh, a big takeaway for me from, from Tara's story, I'm always very inspired by people who do not allow Uh, difficulties in their past define their destinies they completely take charge of where their life goes they don't allow that to define who they are and where they're going one and then two the importance that education played in that self-liberation journey Um, and the last thing I want to say about uh, why this story is so important is that sometimes you know there's uh, abuse that takes place in your own family uh, or in in your own surrounding. And it's so difficult to recognize that abuse because you think, well, I love this person because you do, right? Because love is complicated. And you think that this person has done, you know, all of these things that that are good and out of love for me. You know, but also they've done all of these things which cause you so much pain and you're left in a situation where sometimes, and in Tara's case, she says, you can love somebody so much and you can miss them every day, but still be grateful that they are no longer in your life. It's about making that choice that they don't belong in your life anymore. Um, but recognizing that the love has nothing to do with the fact that they won't change and they don't fit in your life. And it is such a strong message. It is something that I'm sure so many people deal with and find difficulty in understanding because when you're estranged, it is there's so much guilt that comes with that. And there's so much difficulty connected with the complication of having love for the people who you grew up with or the people who raised you or the people who taught you everything that there is to know because, you know, there's a difference between, it's not about saying that person doesn't love you because obviously the love, you're not doubting the love, but there's a difference between intention and the way that that love is practiced and what that does to the relationship. And it is just such an incredible story Um, yeah there's also the love in this book is really complicated isn't it because in addition to the brothers complicated love there's Mm -hmm. also how her parents don't 
protect her. Yes, there isn't. There's that's exactly right. And I think the parents, you know, there's 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 different roles that they play. Like the father is doing in his mind what he thinks is best for his family. You know, it's not that his intention isn't right. It's just that you know, that's what he thinks. Uh, and the mother, there's, it's almost like there are two, two people, there's her as her mother, and then her as the wife of the dad. Yeah. And she might, the mother might think one thing when they're alone. But then as soon as she's around the father, she thinks whatever the father thinks. And for a child that is incredibly difficult, uh, particularly when you are faced with abuse, and all of these difficult emotions as a teenager. Yeah. And I mean, being a teenager, it's tough enough as it is with, with all the things that's going on without that situation. It's just yeah, incredible. And you, can imagine, you can imagine when the abuser is also the child of your mother. Yeah. And, and what that's like, because I'm sure there are many households out there where that is the case, because your mother is the one person that's on your side no matter what right should be should be should be and yeah. but at the same time that the abuser is expecting the same support from the yeah. mother and that's such a complicated dynamic so complicated i mm. also i also read that book um last year or a couple of years ago and um and one of the things that really stood out to me was aside from the intentional violence, which was also how much danger there was in this family, how everybody mm. got hurt all the time. Right. Without, without hospitals, you know, they wouldn't, right. it, when, as you read the book, it feels like someone's got a, you know, a broken bone or a, a pitchfork stuck to their chest or something bad <laughs> is happening at all times. It's right. like, it, you're at mortal danger just living yeah. in this family and they believe in just curing everything with just like local like potions they make at home and eucalyptus and things like that yes <laughs> yes yeah it, i mean it's it's such a an insane it's great but it's crazy to think that there are parts of the world where people are living this way today yeah you know because there the world is is small but it's also large in so many ways and there are so many little corners of the world yes who are you know choose to disconnect from the wider globalized system where there's social media and people are connected and news is abundant and so they choose to lock themselves out from that. So in the same way where they don't know what's happening in the outside world, the outside world has no idea they exist. So God knows, you know, what lives people <laughs> live in different parts of it, right? You I just know. assume that it's 2021 and life is a certain way. But there's so much life on earth. Yes. Um, and so many realities uh, that people create for themselves. In a way, in a way, I feel like Tara and mm -hmm. the character in my book, Anna, had a similar experience because Tara was also living on this little island of not understanding what's out there because she yeah. was, you know, in the mountains with no access to 
to the culture that's you know the culture of the country that she's in really right um, and then she had to at a young age on her own strike out and try to learn how to behave with other people mm-hmm. um and you know to communicate with people where you have no common cultural language right and, and but I you know I think it's really interesting that in the U.S. Um, it's like so many countries in one. Yeah. So if someone is having trouble or is having a difficult life, it's easy for you to pick up and just move a couple of cities the other way, and it's still the same country. You don't need documentation. You don't need nothing. You can just pick up and move, and you're suddenly in this completely new place, and. I think that is uh, the essence of this land of opportunity because you can have countless chances to start over and recreate your reality. Whereas, you know, in many countries around the world, you don't have those liberties in being able to do that. That's true. That's true. Mm. And it it really is the ultimate sort of rags to riches, you know, to come from educate yourself on your own in the basement by reading the Bible to being a Mm -hmm. graduate from Harvard. It's mind blowing. And now we've got Avni Doshi on the line, as they say. Avni's spectacular debut, Burn Sugar, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year and it was long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction this year. But today she's joining us to offer her top tip of what you should be reading this 4th of July. Avni, it's so nice to see you. Welcome to the Boundless Book Club again. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be back. Um, what would you recommend that we should all be reading this 4th of July? <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking about books that would give a sense of, yeah, one particular kind of experience of America. And I thought immediately of Jhumpa Lahiri's novel, The Namesake. Um, I came into contact with Jhumpa's work for the first time when I was uh, at university um, in New York at Barnard College, which is funnily enough where she went to college. And while I was there, her first book, The Interpreter of Maladies, was, I think it won the Pulitzer Prize, huge deal. And everybody, that was like the first time I came into contact with her work. And I was just so struck by this particular story. And again, it's not the only story of of the immigrant experience, but this particular um, telling or her kind of telling of the experience of Indian immigrants and trying to find um, their path, trying to find how to belong, question of the which we assimilate, how much we can assimilate, and how much do we push back against that accumulation um, and cling to our own sense of home. Um, these questions of what it means uh, to belong and how perhaps for immigrants and for certain communities, belonging is like you know, very elusive. It's something that you can never really um, 
capture. It's something you can never really hold on to for very long. And maybe that is part of a greater human experience. So these were some of the things that I um, immediately encountered with her work and they've kind of stayed with me and I've, I've followed her career um, and I'm actually currently reading Whereabouts, which is which is her new book, which is absolutely brilliant. You know, she's again now reinventing herself and thinking and writing in Italian and now translating her own work into English. So I think her intellectual journey and this idea of belonging, whether to a place or to a language, it's constantly evolving and shifting. Um, but the namesake was particularly interesting for me because, well, first of all, you know, The Interpreter of Maladies was a book of short stories. And um, with the namesake, I think it was her first um, mm. novel. And so just the experience of seeing these, you know, multiple generations in this novel, making sense of what America is and what they, what America is to them personally, what America is to them collectively as a family and how that is um, negotiated, not only from within the family with the greater world, but within, you know, between members of the family, it's a constant negotiation and it's almost a conversation that takes place um, across time and through generations. That, that really is one of the things that, um, fascinated me about this book. So is there one central protagonist or are there multiples? So Gogol is kind of the main protagonist. And uh, so his parents both move to the US. They have an arranged marriage and uh, they, they move from Bengal to in India to the US and, you know, it, the, the initial, those initial scenes of his mother's first experiences in the US, I think really struck me the loneliness she, you know, she was kind of, there were just so many layers to her loneliness when she moved to the US because she was a stranger to this new country, but also a stranger in many ways to the man she married because she uh, had an arranged marriage, only knew her husband for a matter of, I believe, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think a matter of weeks um, when, when we when we're introduced to her and and so there's just there's just this loneliness and this longing and at the same time you know we also she gets pregnant quite soon and we even feel this um, alienation from her own body from the system in which she finds herself she's uh, you know in the hospital and uh, you know she do she doesn't know how to relate to the nurses, how to understand the the hospital system. Um, she's having pregnancy cravings, and she, you know, can't find the perfect ingredients um, to reproduce the foods that she misses so much from home. So I think you know Gogol's parents are are very central to the novel, but then we move on to kind of really follow his experience very closely as you know this first generation born in America and what that is like and how he has to kind of make sense of the past and uh, what where his parents have come from and yet at the same time he can never fully know and experience um, their their experiences but how you know through understanding himself and actually unfortunately through the loss of his father at, at the end of the book 
um, he kind of begins to reconnect with his identity in various ways. Although I think, you know, it's, it's kind of, there's a kind of sadness and there's a, there's a sense that that desire to connect is never, there's never really a completion. It's never fully met in a lot of ways. Wow. So I didn't, I never read the namesake, but I'm reading. Oh gosh, I hope now. I haven't ruined it. <laughs> no. <for> <laughs> no, but I'm going to, I'm going to go order it right now and I'm going to read it um, after whereabouts. Uh, but na the namesake turned into a film as well. Have you watched the movie? I have. I actually think it's an excellent movie. It's, I, I'm a big fan of Mira Nair, who is the director of the film. And um, it's actually, I think, one of my top I would say two or three films of hers. I think it's it's a, a really beautiful movie, um, really beautifully acted. And um, I think it captures, you know, some of that loneliness, some of that nostalgia, um, some of the strangeness of existing between two cultures and, and kind of straddling these two different worlds. I think she does a really brilliant job of, mm -hmm. of um, pinpointing those those different feelings and images. And it's it's amazing what it what it means to be an American or a part of the American experience. Like the story that you're talking about is very much that immigrant family, and then this, the next generation of raising their children and holding on to identity. Uh, Andrea's book was very much about um, you know that land of opportunity. Um, I think the 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 boys who lived in the U.S. going back home to bring a wife that will just take care. of of them and cook for them instead of the wife just viewing that as the land of opportunity and their ticket out of the less fortunate life that, that that they live or the book that I was talking about which is about how just how large America is and and, and the different communities that live within the U.S. and the different lifestyles that they live you know the sort of that my my story was about a Mormon family and the the sort of uh, closed off life that they lived within uh, Bucks Peak in, in Idaho. And there's so many different experience to the American experiences in there. And you, Avni, yourself, I mean, you 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 are American too. Yeah, and I I think you know that was one of the the things I found really fascinating about the namesake. I hadn't seen an experience of Indian immigrants written in this particular way that felt very familiar to me in the sense that I could imagine my parents into a similar situation. Like I know my mother also had an arranged marriage and moved very soon after to the US, didn't know a soul. And you know, one of the things she would always tell me is I just used to wake up every day and cry. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, so it was it was fascinating to to see how common I think that is in so many ways. I mean, especially to see it in literature, it kind of um, opens up the experience, you know, creates a kind of universality around it, makes it kind of more acceptable in a lot of ways to talk about. And at the same time, there was something so deeply foreign to me when I read. Jumpa's book because she speaks about a very specific Bengali experience and you know Bengalis have this way my family is Gujarati and so Bengalis have this very specific way of of naming 
um, you know, they they have the kind of the proper name, the name that you're known by in public. And then there's this other name that you have that's your name inside the home and how that's again, a const, uh, an, a, another way of negotiating identity and how that kind of gets translated in America. And I think that's one of the kind of journeys the protagonist is on, you know, like who is he really, which name should he go by? And, and even with language, you know, I, I think when you grow up in a house where multiple languages are spoken, like so many Americans do, it creates a kind of split in your experience. And I know for me, and I've heard Jhumpa Lahiri speak about this on podcasts, as she's gotten older, her relationship to Bengali has, there's become, there's a kind of a gap now, like a distance. She's perhaps not as fluent as she once was. And, and it's very, I, I have a very similar experience um, with my parents, with my mother tongue, if that's what you want to call it, where I feel you know, the, this fluency has been lost. And so there's kind of like this split in almost in consciousness um, where you can have these memories of childhood. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I think language and experience, they're so connected, you know, experience, language kind of seeps into your experience of a moment. And I, I wonder, you know, how, if there is a kind of split in my own experience of my childhood, let's just say, and my experience of the moment now, because you know, I spoke primarily Gujarati as a child, and now my Gujarati is kind of, I don't know, the Gujarati of a two-year-old or a five-year-old, and you know, I'm 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 an English speaker, and that's kind of my medium um, of learning and of writing and of thinking, and so I, you know, I wonder how then language itself. Um, distances you from from your past experiences and perhaps from the experiences of your parents. And I think that's like a, a very common feeling for a lot of Americans, you know, because we have this um, gap. It, it's almost this communication gap that, it, that occurs when you kind of step foot in America and, and the next generation is now see, um, is kind of embedded in English. I think that that adds another another layer to to the immigrant experience that's quite specific for for you know immigrants who are coming from non-english speaking backgrounds. I have a question cuz the US is such a um it's such a land of immigrants that it it's quite a although um your in your book the mother character feels really isolated in my book the main character is so isolated and feels so alone, but their experience is so shared and universal. Um, and I was wondering, growing up with foreign parents in the US, did you feel like that was a shared experience with the other kids in your school that you all had, you were all Americans, but with various heritage from different places? Or did you feel like you were out of place? I went to school primarily Jewish and I think everybody there kind of shared a common and, and I think I there were no other like Indians I think there were no people like there were no other students of color probably until I was much older so pri for the for the I would say it like initially for many years I think I was the only like brown um student and my parents were different because I think you know even though 
you know, there were students of different, perhaps their backgrounds were different, either they were white or then they were all, um, and then, you know, mostly they were all from this kind of Jewish background, a shared Jewish background. And most of them, their parents or their families had been in the US, this, this might, this was probably like a second or third generation. And so, you know, my parents spoke with an accent. Um, my parents were actually not, you know, they were not that interested in, in necessarily assimilating. There were certain ways in which they were, and then they were there were certain ways in which they weren't. And now I think I think back on that, and I find that's quite interesting. And um, I think it's it's something that adds a sort of richness to my own view of the world. And I'm, I'm actually now kind of grateful for it. But I think at the time when you're a child and all you really want is to sort of fit in, it's a little strange to have your parents um, be the only ones that speak in an accent. It's a little strange to you know, have your house smell a little different because the food you cook and the spices you use are different. And um, it's, it's, it's kind of sad not to really celebrate Christmas or have a Christmas tree when everyone else does. And you know, nobody knew what Diwali was, for example, when I was growing up. And so there was a way in which um, it was difficult to kind of mark who I was in the face of who everyone else was. And, and you know, there's a way in which you want to share, but then um, being the only one and being someone who's different, you, you also kind of want to, in a sense, diminish the differences mm -hmm. as much as you can. So yeah, I, I think that for me, we never really had a community um, where we were all kind of experiencing something very similar. I, I felt quite, I, I guess I felt quite alienated as a child and maybe that's why I was, I turned um, to books. It's, um, you just have to share, it's such a tragedy when I look back, but in my school, it was um, it was a terrible insult for the kids to say that your house smells of spice. When people, when kids said that to me, I was like, "Oh my god, my mom's an immigrant." Yeah, <laughs> because it was it was like such a bad insult that your house smells funny. Yeah, of course. No, absolutely. Anything that was different, even if even your lunchbox, right? Even you brought your lunchbox to school, and if you opened it, and there was you know, you wanted the most simple, you know, tuna sandwich, not even tuna, that was probably also too exotic, like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that just had no smell. You wanted to just kind of fit in your body shape, the texture of your hair, all of that. I think you just did not want to stick out at all. Um, and I don't know exactly when that shifted. I think it only shifted when I went to college. You know, I think through high school that remained a kind of anxiety. Um, and I, I, I'm hopeful that for this generation now, you know, there's um, various forms of body positivity and um, a kind of acceptance and celebration of difference um, that I hope, you know, like really has permeated culture here but I I don't know I have my doubts you I think there are various forms of bullying that still emerge for children so yeah sadly um, <laughs> but I think I think it's a really positive thing that most people have 
the world's changed, right? So most people do have more exposure to different cultures and different people and different languages. And, and that can only be a good thing, I, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's strange because in my school, growing up here in Dubai, we had 42 different nationalities. And, it, you know, I feel like I feel so grateful that 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 was never something that was on anyone's mind, I would hope, because we just had such a mix in class. There was, you know, probably no more than three or four people from the same nationality. And then, you know, there was such a good mix that, you know, you're really grateful to, to grow up as a child in an environment like that, not even noticing what that's like. And then, and then you know, for me, hearing stories like this, I, I just, I can imagine how difficult it, 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 it must be for a young child. I, I want to ask you, Avni, one of my early memories of, because my aunt lives in the States and we would go in the summers and we would spend a couple of months there as a family, my, our family and her family. And then that's when I learned about 4th of July, we would all go to this, I think it was like a football stadium. I can't remember now, but everybody would sit on the grass and picnics and just watch the fireworks. And it was just the most incredible atmosphere. I still remember it, even though I was really, really young. What is your favorite uh, 4th of July memory? Um, growing up, we used to go to South Street Seaport um, in New York, which is kind of all the way on the, the sort of tip low the southmost tip of Manhattan and um you could like just hang out there eat junk food and watch fireworks and I just remember being able to eat as much junk as I wanted like <laughs> ice cream and whatever I wanted with you know every color of sprinkles on top and we used to watch fireworks and I just remember the excitement of it um and then I mean, I also have other memories, like more recent ones where, you know, in the past, I would say, however many years, my mom has always done like a really nice, like a, like a, like a late lunch, early dinner at home. And my parents have a beautiful house on, um, um, in New Jersey on this cliff looking over the Hudson River. And so we'll kind of have this delicious meal cooked by my mom, and then we'll sit on their terrace and watch the fireworks from home, um, which we can only kind of see in the distance, but there's something I think before, you know, there's, for me, all of these uh, experiences are always so deeply connected to food. And it's interesting because I think when I was young, I just wanted that like junk food. And now that, that was sort of comforting to me. And now the comfort is in eating like all the food that my mom makes that I, I don't really get to eat, um, you know, in Dubai. And right. so there's something really comforting about just being at home and just have just looking out from her from their terrace and uh, and seeing that view that I kind of grew up with, and so that feels very American uh, mm. to to me now, I guess. Amazing. Well, you'll have to send us pictures this year. We want to see what it looks like. <laughs> it will be definitely. And in the meantime, I think we should all celebrate the Fourth of July with the best food we can lay our hands on. And that is all we have for you today. There are so many great writers in and from the US, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where you find the world's largest publishing industry as well. If you want more recommendations, um, you can hand over to our blog where we're celebrating the new great American novels. That's blog.elfdubai.org. 
Like school, we are now also out for summer, but we'll be back with season three of the Boundless Book Club before you know it. Make sure you hit subscribe wherever you're listening so you get an alert when the next episode drops in September. Until then, we're hanging a large gone fishing sign on the door. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye.